A delightful part of any visit to Turkey is browsing the big public markets you find in every city. Whatever you might need when you walk into a market area is there and has been there for thousands of years. Coming up, we'll get you primed to enjoy a day at the market in Konya. If you're itching to travel, you're not alone. The head of Perillo Tours tells us how a year at home helped underscore why traveling is important to him. It's like New Year's Eve. I have a, a list of things I want to do in life that I recognize from being far away and seeing my life from a distance. While New York Times travel writer Tariro Muzuzewa wants the industry to demonstrate what they say about being inclusive. Letting black travelers like herself see that they're welcome in their advertising, that's a start. Oh gosh, there's no one there who looks like me. How are people like me treated in that destination? I don't know if I should go there. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. A New York Times journalist has a message she wants the travel industry to hear on what being inclusive really means. And the head of a tour company based in New Jersey shares how he hopes his business will return to normal when the pandemic closures become a thing of the past. That's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Let's start the hour with a look at what a visitor can experience in one of the world's oldest cities in central Turkey. Konya has been a city of one name or another for at least 5,000 years. Today, it's an important multi-faith pilgrimage site, and it's the home of the Mevlana Museum. That's where the tomb of the Sufi mystic we know as Rumi is located. It's said that as Rumi walked through the town's marketplace in the 13th century, the rhythmic sound of men hammering gold inspired him to raise his arms and whirl. It's become the devotional dance of the Mevlani order, and you can still see the whirling dervishes in Konya today. To help us visit the city's big public market, we're joined by Turkish tour guide Lali Sermon Aran. Merhaba, Lali. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Now, first of all, when we're in the town of Konya, I know from my experience taking groups around, people get a little bit, like, uh, anxious. It seems a little more conservative. Women are more covered up in a town like this. Describe the atmosphere in Konya compared to a place like Izmir or Ankara. Well, as you just put into words, it's a little bit more conservative. But what attracts people's attention is not the conservatism of the town. Being a conservative is not a bad thing. It's just a personal understanding of how you want to practice your life and your religion. The reason I'm saying is that Muslim women prefer, if they are devout, they prefer to cover up. But in different religions, people don't or may or may not need to show their faith with what they wear because there's a visual aspect to it. It attracts attention. Otherwise, Konya is not any different than any more conservative city anywhere in the world. Okay, so different um, groups in different religions will have their women wearing hats and their men wearing beards. Yes, if there is a visual indicator, then you notice it. If there was not, you would not notice it. Okay. So life is not different in Konya than it's anywhere else in Turkey. It's just men have more beards and women have more scarves. That's it. Okay, we're going to go to the market. Now, when you step into a market like anywhere, it's a sort of a cultural scavenger hunt, and you have a chance to learn about the culture from the market. 
if you were going to take one of our listeners into the market in Konya, what are the, some, of, some of the fun things you would see that would give you a better understanding oh, of the local culture? Oh, I love the market in Konya. First of all, what I love is that it was a market 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, and today. It's still at the same place in the same layout. And more or less, probably the items carried in the market are the same. You can find food items, you can find vegetables, you can find hardware, you can find barber shops, you can find tea shops. Whatever you might need when you walk into a market area is there and has been there for thousands of years. You know, one thing I like when I go to a market in, in many countries is you have um, farmers, usually older men and women, coming in from villages in the countryside. They come in even with their horse cart loaded down with their produce. What's something we might see from a, a small uh, business person who's just bringing in what they actually grew? Any sort of vegetable, I would say onions and potatoes, cheese, from the nomads bringing in their products, butter. So cheese, the nomads uh, earn their livelihood, uh, you know, grazing their goats and, and making cheese. Yes, skin cheese, an aged cheese. So These is that goat cheese or sheep cheese? Goat cheese. Goat cheese, okay. And they, uh, they age the cheese in the goat's skin by... They press it down into the goat skin, bury it in the ground. And if you walk through the market and if you see white thing in something hairy, it's not anything to be scared so of. It's goat cheese. A modern, local, you know, well-educated, professional person might look forward to going to the market and finding a hairy bag of goat skin and inside of it is a buried, aged, wonderful bit of nomadic-made goat cheese. Exactly. Very delicious. And what I love to do much is that I usually love to walk through the market, get to see the cowbells and the sheep, shepherd's coats, utensils sold, the barbers and everything, and then finally end up in the produce part of the market. And from one stall to the other, I move slowly by tasting the products. I love it. And that's what I do with my travelers. We go stall by stall, taste the sheep cheese, then taste the butter, then taste the pastrami, then taste the sujuk, taste the olives. And uh, without realizing it, it's also our morning snack. Are they happy to let you have a taste when you go into the market? That's the norm. That's how we shop. If you're shopping for yourself, you might want to know how it tastes. Because these are small family-produced items, there's no standard to it. And also, this is the sort of hub from a market point of view for people who are farming and, and herding all over the countryside. They'll come into town for the gear that they need. Yes. And, and near the market, you'll have little shops that help equip the farmers and the herders. Yes. Mm-hmm. Describe a Turkish barber shop a little bit. Well, I don't go to barber shops, but I'd <laughs> love to describe it for you. They're usually small, the traditional ones. They wouldn't be plush, but they would be simple. The customers would be seated on a comfortable seat and there would be a sink right in the front. And the barber, after giving the traditional hair sh- haircut and the shave, would flame your, spank your face with a flame. No, this, wait a minute. So first of all, they cut you like in an old Western where they will sharpen the knife and yes. they'll give you the blade thing. Yes. And then they will flame you. Tell about that. To remove the tiny, tiny hair that's high up on your cheeks where they won't, don't want to touch the razor or your ears or your nose. So they spank your ear with a flaming cloth. And they burn, yes, they <laughs> burn the fine hair there. And there's probably the whole gossip scene and people are talking and it's just sort of a, a personality spot. And as travelers, we can walk around and feel the pulse of the community. You could step outside and, and a boy might be coming down with a whole tray of, of chai. And you can grab one. 
and pay casually. Nobody would ask you why you are stopping him, why you are grabbing the tea. That's the norm. Talk about the tea business. How does this work? Because it's it's everywhere you look, people are sipping on these delicate little hour-shaped glasses of tea. We call them tulip glasses, tulip-shaped glasses. Even though we are known with the Turkish coffee, we're a tea-drinking nation. We love our tea. It's the black tea we brew on a pot, and uh, every hour of the day, it is the beverage that we go for. We're getting a sample of the scene you'll find at the public market in Konya, Turkey. The city of more than a million is best known with visitors for the Mevlana Museum, which has the tomb of the Sufi mystic and poet we know of as Rumi. Paradoxically, the practices of Sufi Islam run against the grain of fundamentalist religious thinking. Yet Konya is thought of as one of the most conservative cities in Turkey. Our guide on travel with Rick Steves is Lali Sermon Aran. She operates SRM Travel from her home base in Istanbul. Our conversation was recorded before the pandemic. Lali, if a traveler is going to Konya, um, to me it's just like the central market, but is there a name of it? How would we find it? Yes, there is. The produce part of the market is known as the ladies' market, and it sometimes confuses people. They think it's ladies they're going to see or ladies' artwork. Not because of that, but it was usually the ladies that used to bring to sell in their products once upon a time. What might those products have been? Food items. Like the cheese we were talking about. Yes, food items. And uh, the rest of it is the historic Konya market. So there's the ladies' market is the covered produce section, and exactly. then all around it is this festival of culture. Yes. And one thing I love about going to markets anywhere in my travelers, whether it's Asia, Central America, or Europe, um, or in this case in Asia Minor, uh, is the, the wonderful little food stalls, not for tourists, not for tour groups, but for the locals that are going shopping, for the, the people that don't have a lot of money that are coming in to buy some bells for their goats or whatever. Uh, and one of my favorite little slices of Turkish cuisine culture is the little pizza shops. They've got these Turkish pizza pide. shops. Pide. Describe the Turkish, I, I call it Turkish pizza, but it's, it's shaped more like a, a football almost that's been yes. flattened. Uh, it's a very thin crust, and we like different topics on it. It's exactly prepared the way pizza would be and cooked in wood ovens. It's a thinner crust, and we like minced meat on it, vegetables, and eggs, and cheese. Or you can get a mix of all, but it's very casual, and it's inexpensive, and that's the fast food we go for. Wow. But don't forget to drink Iran along with. Iran, what is that? Iran is diluted yogurt drink, diluted with water. And is that, uh, is it healthy? Is It, it uh, is very healthy because yogurt is healthy. It has got live bacteria that helps you. And Iran is a little bit diluted of the same thing. When you go to a, even to a Burger King or McDonald's, they would have Iran. McDonald's with, in, yeah, in course, Turkey has Iran. Of course, they could not fight against the culture. People want to drink their Iran. I love it. Th- that's sort of the go-to drink when you want a healthy, refreshing drink as you're out and about and you want to be like the locals in Turkey. Yes. Iran. A-Y-R-A-N. A-Y-R-A-N, right. So wandering around the, the market, Lolly, you, you're likely to find some things you would not find in a market here in the United States. When I'm in a market in Turkey, I find ladies sitting on carpets with jars of water, and in the jars are little black... Leeches. Leeches. What's with that? It's supposed to... Well, of course, there's no such thing as dirty blood. Blood is blood, but... The leeches are supposed to suck on the blood that um, has finished the circulation through your body. So that would be the dirty blood, not pumped out, but being taken into the... 
So people believe if you have a leech sucking on you, it's sucking out the tired old blood that needs yes. to leave the system. Yes, with less oxygen. It has traveled all through your cells or where, uh, wherever it's supposed to go and has got less oxygen, and the leeches suck upon it. I cannot tell you what are the health benefits of it and if there are any, but it's a common scene that you will get to see. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lali Sermon Aran. We're talking about visiting a market in Turkey. And Lauren in Boise, Idaho, emailed us. And Lauren writes, The last time I was in Turkey, I noticed there were shopping malls, high-rise shopping malls being built. Do local merchants and shopkeepers in Konya feel that shopping malls are an abomination or, or are shopping malls in Konya just going to be welcomed with open arms as the world becomes more and more modern? That's an interesting question all over the world. We've got our charming markets, but we have the efficiency, and you can park your car there, and you've got the big shopping mall. What's the dynamic in Turkey today with development and modernization? The small business owner sees the shopping malls as a threat because it is taking away their potential. The big brands, international brands, have a higher purchasing power and provide everything in mass for less. But then you don't get to taste or eat or consume anything that has had a human touch on it. That's from a consumer's point of view. And from a business point of view, it's killing the small businesses. So in Turkey, like everywhere else, there is the traditions and the bulldozer of the modern world and people that want to make money and people that want to keep it cozy. And when we travel, we can connect with that. Lali Sermon thank you so much for giving us a fun peek at an intimate side of Turkey, stepping into a city market. Thank you, Rick. Tariru Muzuzeva returns to Travel with Rick Steves in just a bit to tell us what she'd like inclusivity to mean in the travel industry. But first, Steve Perillo offers an insider look at the tour industry on hold. We'll ask what makes him optimistic about a return to operating overseas group tours. Thanks for joining us today on Travel with Rick Steves. One of the first parts of planning a trip is to decide if you'd be better off taking a tour or traveling independently. For an inside look at how the big bus tour business works, we're joined right now by Steve Perillo. He's the CEO of Perillo Tours. Steve's family started their tour company in 1945 as a way to take Italian-Americans from New York back to the old country. That was back at the end of the Second World War. Since then, they've added other sunny European destinations and Hawaii to their itineraries. We checked in recently with Steve at his home base in New Jersey, to see how he's holding up during the pandemic while all of our tour companies are on hold, and to hear what's keeping his spirits up as he anticipates safe travels and reopened borders again soon. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. How are you doing? What's, how's your tour company actually doing during this pandemic? It came to a complete stop, uh, I guess it was March of last year, and we anticipated a non-year but of all things, we're going into a second year, and I'm not sure we're going to have a second year, but I do know we're going to have great times ahead. That is for sure. I'm just really excited to talk to you as if times are normal. I'm, I'm confident we'll get back to what is essentially normalcy for travel, and I want to learn more about the bus tour industry, because to me, you are an insider who, who really knows about that. In normal times, let's think of bus tours in Europe. Who are the big players, and, and how does that market break out? Uh, there's uh, about 20, 25 of us, the, the big ones, maybe uh, 100,000 passengers, which is a lot, Trafalgar, Globus. 
the king of the high end is Tauk and Abercrombie and Kent. And uh, then there's a bunch of family-oriented ones that are smaller, like Perillo Tour, Central Holidays, and a lot of them are aging out, uh, you know, that generation and being merged into the larger ones. But we're going for our fourth generation, and so we're going to hang in there within our niche. Yeah. Uh, which so when is you Italy. think of the when you think of the big boys, they're roughly a hundred thousand tourists that they take on their buses in a year. And then your your company, Perillo, how many would you take in a year? Uh, we would take fifteen to twenty thousand between. Uh, uh, people on tour buses and uh, customized uh, okay. vacations, which we got into in the last 10 years. And with my company, we're sort of in the same category as you. Now, when we look at these companies, especially the big ones, where would they get most of their sales? Is it through direct sales, booking sites? Is it through conventional travel agents? It's uh, the new word in our industry is travel advisors because agents, I don't know, it's less uh, appealing than advisor. So travel advisors uh, would do uh, most of their bookings, but it's getting a, a smaller and smaller percentage starting uh, from 9-11. I guess we got more. Well, the Internet is what changed everything, yeah. right, Rick? Uh, the Internet made direct sales more possible. But, uh, you know, if you have an agent who's working hard for you and you're selling mm -hmm. directly around them, uh, they don't like that. And they're justified in, in not liking that. We're down to 50-50 uh, between direct and uh, I shouldn't even, this is very confidential stuff, but, but well, who cares? We won't tell anybody, uh, just our <laughs> friends who are listening now. But uh, I was curious about that. So you sell about half of your seats direct and about half of your seats through travel advisors. Yeah, but 20 years ago, it was 85, 90% through travel advisors. Right. Uh, yeah. So that's the direction and uh, you, you don't pay as much commission. Uh, the overall markup on a uh, travel, so you, you want to know everything. I'm, I love telling people the truth about this. The average markup on a tour is 25%. Uh, I don't know how you do it, but this is uh, what we do. And so you'll share it with a travel agent. They'll get 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and we'll get 10. When we sell it directly, we get the whole 25 but we need to, because when we do consumer marketing, we have to pay for it. And uh, That's my next point, Steve, because I think the time I met you in person was at a travel show. I think we were in Philadelphia or, or maybe in New Jersey somewhere. And all over the country, these travel shows go on and tour companies like you or me would pay for a table. And the idea is people are going direct. And when you go direct, you don't have to pay a commission to a travel agency, but you do have the costs. There's no beating the system if you want to sell direct, you're going to pay a certain amount of money. If you want to go through travel advisors, you're going to pay a certain amount of money. And it's like you can't beat the system. It always ends up being the same amount of money to get the same customers. So it just cost, so it's, it's, it's the really cost of doing business. Beat. It's marketing. Yeah. You can give people a commission or you can pay that money you're saving by not giving the commission by, by doing the work that they do anyways. So uh, I'm just talking about if I want to take a tour from, you know, X tour company, I could buy directly from them or I could buy it through a travel agent. How do you compare costs? How do you how do you be a smart consumer? Look, travel advisors are are free. You don't pay more or less, but you compare uh, what's included versus the cost, and uh, we compare costs by per diem. Forget about days. So a, mm -hmm. a ten day tour is usually for Europe is an eight night trip. So uh, you divide the trip by the eight nights, and you then you can compare. What That's you're doing. a good tip, Steve. To just look at how many nights, how many nights in hotels do I have, and then you can be. Yeah, there's no games with nights. You can't. <laughs> but That's days right. you can fool around a little. The meals there is another issue. Authentic meals and uh, mm -hmm. wine with dinner. You know, see if the meals are included. And above all, half the cost of the land is the hotels. 
I don't care about luxury hotels, but being downtown is a real, you know, after dinner, you can walk around downtown. It's fantastic. And that costs uh, a lot more money, especially, you know, Venice, St. Mark's Square. Or, oh, you know, I always tell people, uh, yeah, it, you've got to read the fine print of where that hotel is. They might say it's in the Venice area. Well, that, that could be halfway to Bologna. <laughs> so you have uh, to you have to know you're comparing apples to apples. For instance, one tour might seem cheaper than the other, but they don't include all the meals, or they sell you more options, and the other tour would include all the sightseeing and so on. And you also have the factor that some tours have smaller numbers of people, and it's more expensive to have a smaller group than a bigger group. We're getting an insider's look at how tours work today on Travel with Rick Steves, and our guest is Steve Perillo, whose family company, Perillo Tours, has been operating tour groups to Italy for more than 75 years. Steve, for me, when I put my buses together, it's such an interesting puzzle to decide how many people am I going to put in that bus. I'd like to have fewer people, but I can give a much better price if I have more people on the bus. A lot of tour companies have 50 people on a 50-seat bus. What is your philosophy about the size of the group? Because... You, you want to make it affordable, and if it's too small of a group, it becomes a lot more expensive for the customers. It sure does. In the uh, olden days, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, we would have 54 people. We'd have the luggage strapped to the roof of the of the hmm. bus, and this is before air conditioning and hotels, and it was really a madhouse. Then you, yeah. you're all huddled around the tour guide before the microphones came in and the headsets. And uh, now we're down to 40, uh, which it's usually couples, so it's 20 couples. Often it's not a full tour. But at a certain point, I don't know, there's some older couples, if they could spend two weeks alone together on a trip. And I think they, they want some company. Uh, so uh, a few more couples. But, I've found uh, the same thing, Steve, because I originally did minibus tours with eight people. And the social world was very complicated, and if there was any tension, everybody knew it. If you weren't getting along, there was nowhere else to go. But then we got up into 2024. 20, now we have 26 people on a bus, and you've got a wonderful uh, social world there. And to me, that's a real plus, is to have a little more diversity in the group, and that's a reason to have a larger group. And I think you've hit it on the nail there. It's funny. The First of all, everyone's kind of standoffish, but by the third night, with the wine and the meal, they are singing on the way back to the hotel, always. You, and, but every group you ask, any tour leader, every group has their own dynamic. And the, the tour leaders are magicians about how they uh, bring people together. Well, that's a good point about that bonding is really important. I mean, if you don't have a guide that takes the initiative to bond the group, they can still be strangers after 10 days together. Or if it's done well, like you said, they can be walking back to the hotel singing together after three nights. That's usually the case. And, you know, we've had lifelong friendships, marriages, babies. You know how many people have been conceived on a Perillo tour in Sorrento? <laughs> on a, <laughs> when the moon is out, forget it. Steve, when I think about a bus tour, the guide is a very important uh, dimension to it. First of all, I don't get the, the terminology right. I, I call guides guides, but what are they, tour leaders, managers? What, what do you call the guy that is with the mic on the front of the bus? Yeah, there's two types. There's the the manager, the leader, the guide. Uh, we have different names. And then there's the local expert guides, yeah. which uh, legally, you know, our main guide cannot go into the Vatican and show people around. They, they need a special license. They need training. Right. So those are the two types. And... Uh, the regular guide, yeah, they are so loved by the. Uh, I was a guide, you were a guide, right? right. The, the customers, oh, they I love just. It. When I was young and single and a tour leader, 
I was a rock star. <laughs> of course, it. it I know what you list. mean. It's it's just one of the most <laughs> it was one of the most gratifying things because you're doing what you love, and your students are there by choice. Nobody's being dragged onto that tour, and it's it's quite nice to be a guide. But when we think about guides now, you've got what fifteen thousand uh, people going on your tours in a year. You've got a lot of guides. How do you find the guides, and and are are they paid completely up front, or is their pay a mix of tips and kickbacks on the shopping and commissions on the options that they sell, the optional sites. Yeah, all of that. Uh, the guides get about 200 euros a day, and then uh, that's matched in tips at the end, probably. That's per person. Right. Uh, overall, the tour company pays about 200 euros a day. It's at 176. Okay. Uh, and then the, uh, look, the customers want suggestions about where to shop. A lot of tour companies are, are very good about not doing this, but a lot of, you know they ask for it. And if something goes wrong with the purchase, you have recourse. You can yeah. call us, and we'll see, you know we'll get you right. a, a rebate. So uh, and they get a portion of that, and that's the uh, economy of the tour guide. And some are hired directly. Uh, a lot of them are freelancers, and they've been with us for decades. Their their children have joined us, and it's I a good know living. I know most of them. I know most that's of them. That's great. I I also know that. Uh, a lot of times there's an incentive for tour guides to sell the optional sightseeing excursions. Is that pretty standard these days? Yeah. It's all a matter of how aggressive. You do not want to be aggressive. You don't want to be uh, you know, slamming this in their face. It's, very, it's a touchy situation. We try to be classy mm-hmm. about it. You know, people, uh, they want the advice and they... Now, optional tours is a good idea too. Would would some companies, you know, the top end companies that cost twice as much per day as yours, would they would they just include all of the options and not have that sort of extra incentive for their guides, but pay their guides the entire yeah amount yeah of the the upper end? There's no shops and uh, everything's included. But this got a downside because some people want to do different things. Some people want yeah, the so afternoon you're, off. You're and, paying for uh, it whether so, you like it or not. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you assess how good a guide is in order to hire them back? The customer, uh, you know, the customer reaction. So you got you pull can, the customers. The feedback. Yeah, and we know very quickly. Uh, yeah, and the feedback, it's clear. This this guy did a great job or this girl did a great job and they'll be on it again. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Steve Perillo from Perillo Tours. We're learning how bus tours work in Europe. Lately, Steve, there's been some challenges for travelers individually and for groups. I mean... We have crowds like in a normal year, of course, after COVID and before COVID. Crowds are, are huge. We've got so many tour groups these days, and you're competing with emerging economies. We've got massive tourism coming in from India and from China, and new demand on, on the Vatican Museum, on the Uffizi Gallery. Has that dealt you any sort of uh, challenges? Tremendously. Uh, I used to be able to walk into St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice, just walk in. You can't do that. There's St. Peter's, and right. you can't do that anymore. Uh, I really blame the cruise lines above all because, uh, you know, they just come in for the day. And they all want to do the same hotel. thing. They all want to do yeah. exactly the same thing. You got 3,000 people in that ship, and they're all heading for David. It's really a problem. It's called over tourism, it's a legitimate problem. Uh, something that a tour company can do is bypass that stuff by getting private uh, admission times for the big uh, museums. Mm-hmm. So it's controllable. But to, to see uh, the line at the Vatican Museum wrapped around the Vatican three hours long or more for uh, normal people who didn't plan, 
Yeah. It's really, really become a problem. Venice has become a serious problem. It's almost like they should charge a 10 euro yeah. admission. Something has to be done with the cruise lines in yeah. some way. It's just, it's just too much. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens after COVID on that. What about that? What about the heat? Has that affected your sales? Uh, just the heat of the summer for, cause you focus on Italy. Yeah, August has uh, always been, uh, you know, people have been standoffish about August. We lower the prices. So if you can go, I mean, if you can go in January, God bless you. I mean, that's yeah. really the time to go. Yeah. I mean, it used to be, uh, we used to sell much more January, but the price differential between spring and uh, dead of winter is not, a, the airfares have gone up even in the winter. So the differential isn't there, but for uh, for crowds, you know, you don't want crowds and the weather's in Italy, it's sunny every day in January. Just ah, bring a coat. All season's save, great uh, in Italy. Yeah, I've just, you know, philosophically, I've not wanted to have that tiered pricing where you charge more for the most popular months, but the demand is so skewed to the popular months that we've had to do it. We've had to give people uh, pay extra to go when everybody wants to go and give a bigger discount for people going the month after or the month before. We're comparing notes on running a tour company and what we're all expecting will be the tail end of this pandemic right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Steve Perillo, whose grandfather founded Perillo Tours in New York's Little Italy neighborhood in 1945. Their website is perillotours.com. In a tradition his father started as Mr. Italy, Steve appears in TV ads that run locally in the New York market. His ads are so well-known there that Adam Sandler actually once did a parody of them for Saturday Night Live. I want to be very clear about what we can do for you. We can take you on a hike. We cannot turn you into someone who likes hiking. We can take you to the Italian Riviera. We cannot make you feel comfortable in a bathing suit. We can provide the zip line. We cannot give you the ability to say we and mean it. I just really enjoyed the uh, Saturday Night Live spoof about your advertising that if you're a sad person at home, well, you're going to be a sad person in Italy. There's actually a grain of truth to that. And my hunch is it comes out of your experience that don't expect, you know, <laughs> this tour to make you different than who you are. And uh, if you're going over there with the wrong attitude, you might not have a very good vacation. Right. And they're the sour pusses on the bus sometimes and yeah. they uh, drag everyone down. Uh, but my thing about travel is it's not about what you see and the experience and the new stuff as much as the way you see your life back home. And nobody talks about this. When I come home uh, from every trip, it's like New Year's Eve. I have a, a list of things I want to do in life that I recognize from being far away and seeing my life from a distance. And it's the number one value I find from getting away uh, and I have all these resolutions that I make on every yes. uh, on every return flight. I don't know if anyone else does this. No, but I, I do, do too. You learn more about yourself when you leave home. And when you come home, you come home with a stoked appetite for new things. Also, what it does to time, when you it seems like time would speed up when you travel because you're doing all these new things, but it actually slows down. You say, I've been in Europe for three days. It feels like three weeks. I love that. And that effect is from the variety and the fact that you're not in a, uh, a groove like every day you drive home from work, you do the same thing. And that, that's what makes time fly. To slow down time, you have variety, tremendous variety in your life. And it really, mm -hmm. really is a lesson for your life back home. Steve, if your grandfather, the man who founded Perillo Tours in 1945, could tour Italy on a tour bus now, 
what would he most marvel at? The cost is un, is really uh, unbelievable. The, the way we can get the cost down to $3,000 for a 10-day trip, including everything, and uh, everything is so smooth. It's not just us. You know, it's just the science of uh, tourism has really gotten sophisticated compared to his time. So I think he'd like that. But, you know, he was a steamship guy, completely different, uh, slower life. That must have been a different age to go to Europe and to uh, to take the ship over there. Well, Steve Perillo, thank you so much and best wishes with your work. And uh, let's just look forward to the day when we can all get back into Europe and uh, resurrect our travel dreams and, and know that we have good options. Take care. Thank you, Rick. You'll find links to our guests each week at ricksteves.com slash radio. Recommendations for how travel companies can make more travelers feel welcome and included. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm a privileged white man in a predominantly white industry, and like so many people in our country, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations and the murder of George Floyd last year, I'm becoming more aware of the systemic racism in our country, the discrimination that's too often ignored. New York Times travel writer Tariro Muzuzewa writes about how travel intersects with race, gender, and the environment. She's back with us on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about race and travel and what groups, groups like Black Travel Alliance, are are doing to promote inclusivity in the travel industry and to support and acknowledge the travel needs of people of color. Tariro, thanks so much for being back with us. Hi, Rick. Thank you for having me back. Now, this is a, it's a fascinating and important and a difficult year as our country is, is working to deal honestly with systemic racism and that challenge that spills into travel and tourism as well. You've written about it pretty boldly in the New York Times, and it's great to have you here. What's your basic message to the very white industry of tourism? My message would be, you have no choice but to diversify. We know that Black travelers gay travelers, travelers with disabilities, travelers just have so much power. And, you know, before the pandemic, a lot of money was coming from these travelers. We know that Black travelers in particular were spending billions of dollars on travel. They spent $109 billion on travel in 2019. That's just Black U.S. leisure travelers. So if you want to, you know, stay in business and keep up with the times, right. it, you have to become more inclusive. So basically, I mean, it's it's different than ethics. It's just flat out good business not to discriminate. Absolutely. I'm like, you should do it because it's the right thing to do. But yeah. if you huh. need it plainly said, <laughs> do it for your bottom do line. Do it for your bottom line. <laughs> and, and I've been thinking a lot about what motivates Americans. And we can talk a lot about love your neighbor. But when push comes to shove for so many people, it's just what's in my financial interest. So you're saying if you have a travel business, you're missing the boat by not being open to people of all different lifestyles and ethnicities and so on. Now, you recently reported that uh, U.S. black leisure travelers spent $109 billion on travel in 2019, but many of them say they still aren't treated well or valued as much as white travelers. So there's a lot of money there. Normally, if somebody's got money, everybody smiles and says, ah, what can I do to help you? Uh, But that's not happening. How so? And and how can we do better in that specific regard? You know, I think... The most basic thing that can happen is that so many of these travel companies rely on marketing on social media, right? Like everybody's got an Instagram page. If you go to the Instagram page, 
who is in all of those photos using your product, promoting your destination, whatever angle you're coming at it from, are the people that you're featuring representative of a wide range of people or are they all white travelers who are fairly well off? I think that's one starting point is just make it visible to everyone who goes to your Instagram page or onto your website Mm -hmm. that you are welcoming to all of these people, right? And then I think, you know, beyond that, it's a matter of actually in practice, making people feel welcome at your property. We know every couple of weeks, it feels like there's some report of a fairly public racist incident because, you know, a member of staff or a fellow guest did something and, you know, a black guest or otherwise guest who's not white says, you know, I was treated visibly differently and it's because of my race. I think those are a few concrete things that can just start changing immediately. And conceivably, we could get to a point when something like that happens everybody there just kind of is appalled and they can't believe this person is so clueless to be treating that other human being that way. I mean, it would be great if there was a a grassroots kind of upswell of that and then everybody would know that you cannot stay in business when you have that attitude about people who are of a different uh, ethnicity or a different sexual orientation or whatever. Now, 2020 was a huge year for raising awareness of race issues and I would imagine there's been progress made, but also... After the George Floyd murder and the protests, a lot of companies made big promises to support diversity and equity. Have you tracked how those promises are actually going forward? Were they just talk, or is there actually progress being made since the uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrations? In the wake of those protests, a lot of companies from, you know, luggage companies to tour operators and hotels and everybody said... We're posting a black square on Instagram and we're sending out a statement that says we care about racial diversity, Black Lives Matter. That's what they said. And people since have said to them, what are you practically doing about this? Are you hiring more black people? Are you allowing those people in your company to to rise and have positions of power? Are you spending more on those employees, on black travelers, on enticing them. And, you know, one thing that came out of that time that I have been following is the Black Travel Alliance. It's an initiative calling for travel companies to commit to diversifying every aspect of their business in the short and long term. And one of their asks was that these companies, to begin making change, had to be upfront about diversity in their ranks. So they asked hundreds of companies to share those numbers. And a lot of them did. And every couple of months, there are a number of companies that, you mean dozens of companies that are saying like, here's the progress that we've made. I think true change in this aspect really takes a lot of time and a reshaping of company culture and all of that. So we'll see how that is going in the next few months. The Black Travel Alliance has three pillars they write about, alliance, amplification, and accountability. Can you briefly explain what those mean? Yes. So I think, you know, for accountability, they want to make sure that people, companies in particular, are actually following through on these promises that they made last year, right? Whether that means we are going to hire a certain number of Black people, we're going to work with certain organizations, whatever that is. This is a matter of this organization saying, 
following up and saying, are you really doing this thing? Or did you just say that right. for clout right. and not follow through? And for the amplification aspect, as I understand it, it's raising awareness about these issues, but also helping Black people who work within the travel industry be heard, have their voices be heard. And then the alliance is, you know, creating this community that previously sort of was scattered, right? Of course, there are Black travel writers and there are Black solo travelers and Black families that travel. All of these people were sort of operating in different groups. And this is one organization that's working to put all of this together. Well, that sounds like very practical steps to take to actually make a difference. Our guest from her home studio right now on Travel with Rick Steves is New York Times journalist Tariro Mazuzewa. You often see her byline in the travel section. Tariro wants the travel industry to know what she looks for as an African-American in feeling welcomed by destinations and companies that call themselves inclusive. We have a link to Tariro's work and to the Black Travel Alliance with the notes for this week's show. You'll find them at ricksteves.com radio. You know, we're talking about advertising, and you're saying, well, if you would just feature more people of color in your ads, that would, uh, that would speak volumes. Do you think companies analyze who is going to be likely to do those things and then amplify that wine tour to people they think like wine and amplify that, let's go to the old country tours to people who, whose ancestry is in that old country? Or is it something that should be just more general? That is a great sort of chicken and egg question, right? <laughs> because I, I think with Black travelers, there is a sense that, you know, you go to a destination's tourism website and you say, oh, gosh, there's no one there who looks like me. Right. How are people like me treated in that destination? I don't know if I should go there. Right. Or, oh, I really like the suitcase brand. They have really cool stuff. But hmm, it's a little weird that, like, everybody who seems to shop there or who they're selling to is white, you know, and there is data to back up that it actually, that shapes how black travelers spend their money. I think, you know, MMGY had a study, I want to say at the end of 2020 or early 2021, that showed that, you know, 54% of black travelers are in agreement that they're more likely to visit a destination if they see black representation in travel advertising. Yeah. So it's a bit of, saying, show me people who look like me, and I'll come there. I'll know that I'm welcome there. It's probably a huge missed market opportunity if you just look at it from stoking your, your business. I mean, it, whether it's black travelers or, or gay travelers or older travelers or younger travelers, if you let people who understandably are concerned about how comfortable will I be in that destination see people in the advertising who are comfortable at that destination, it's a huge implied message that you're welcome and you're going to have a great time. Look at these people. Absolutely. And I think you just touched on something that's really important, Rick, which is that it's not just about saying, I don't want to go to that destination because there's no one there who looks like me. So I just don't know. Right. There is in particular with black travelers in America or gay travelers in America, we know that there is a real safety issue at heart here, right? Uh, you're risking your life if you go to a place where you are not welcome. Well, that's that brings me to this point about uh, the Green Book. And of course, a lot of us have seen the movie. I've been fascinated by the Green Book. But back in the earlier times, when uh, there was actually a guidebook that helped black Americans who wanted to go on a road trip know where they could stop and eat and sleep and where they'd even be allowed to be out after dark, you know? And uh, 
This was a, a guidebook for survival in America if you happen to be a black person taking a road trip. Of course, we'd like to think that went out with the 1950s and the 1960s, but the whole need for the Green Book survives today. And, and you write about how there's Facebook chat groups that, that really are the modern-day equivalent of the Green Book. Absolutely. So, you know, Victor Hugo Green created the Green Book in 1936. And like you said, it was a guide for where it was safe for black people to go, where it was not safe. And today, those are questions a lot of black travelers still ask themselves as they travel throughout the United States. And they check with their friends, they share their locations. In Facebook groups and in other group chats, people will say, hey, I'm thinking about going to this place. Do you think that's a good idea for me? Or I want to take my kids to this place. Is it safe there? Has anybody done this? Or other people would just chime in and say, hey, you know, my family just drove through this town and we had a really great time. So I think that's where that's still prevalent. Those groups are modern day green books. There's an organization that that just sounds like a filling a very important niche called Black Girls Travel 2. Tell us about that organization. Black Girls Travel To is an organization that was created by Danny Rivers Mitchell years ago. And I think, you know, she wanted to talk about representation. She wanted to show Black women traveling all over the world and also just show how different these women were and how enriching travel could be. And I think often when you see people who look like you or who look like people that you know or people that you're related to, you feel empowered to go do that same thing, right? Like if you see somebody who looks like you, you know, hiking Kilimanjaro, you sort of get the idea that like, hey, if she could do that, why couldn't I? And I think that's one of the coolest things about Danny's organization. And, you know, there's so many other Black travel entrepreneurs who really worked to amp up representation of what it looks like to be Black and traveling, while also encouraging others to get out there and do it and know that they're welcome to do it. I also have been tuned in lately to the fact that there's a lot of um, just sort of passive acceptance of our very dark racist past in regards to slavery. And when you travel in the Deep South, a lot of times you'll go to some, some museum or something And it can make white people feel much more comfortable about slavery than maybe we should. What is the new thinking about the gentility of the South and the sights we might see down there? You know, for the last couple of years, there's been this huge movement to really revisit how stories are told at these museums. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening have been on like a historic house museum tour, for example, or like a plantation tour where you're walking through this old house and you're told about like the beautiful silver set in the house or that painting or why like that room looks so good and the furniture is ancient. So it's amazing. It's an antique. And, you know, there are a lot of people who've been looking and saying, Why are we focused on the things in this place? Why are we focused on the things that the white families who owned slaves had for pleasure? Why aren't we talking about the people who built this house, the people who cleaned this furniture and were beaten if they didn't or killed if they didn't do something the right way? Why aren't we talking about the enslaved people who lived in these places? So there's a lot of that kind of shift happening. I think if you go to Charleston, if you go to Savannah, if you go to New Orleans, there's still a lot of places that are doing it the old school way, but there's a real significant shift happening there as well. 
Okay, so let's pretend you're my tour guide, Tariro. And by the way, I'm talking with Tariro Muzuzewa, and she's a travel reporter from The New York Times, and she writes about how travel intersects with race and gender and the environment. And we're talking about the built-in discrimination and, and racism in the tourism industry. Pretend you're my tour guide, uh, Tariro, and I've never been to um, travel around the United States. I got 10 days, and I really want to learn to better appreciate black heritage. What are the top five sites you'd want me to see on this itinerary? Let's just wrap up our discussion with with you laying out an itinerary that will open me up to the uh, importance of uh, how how black heritage has been a big part of what America is all about. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Um, There are so many things to see and so many different parts of this country that touch on different parts of American history and black people's history in this country. But I would highly recommend the African American Museum of History in Washington, D.C., that Smithsonian Museum. Mm-hmm. I think that is a great place to learn about African American history at different points in time. Mm-hmm. And you could spend a whole day in there and still not feel like you've seen everything. Okay. Um, I know I'm looking forward to spending more time in Charleston. I think every time I go to Charleston, I learn a lot about African-American history. There's so many different sites there to visit, and they are working on a new African-American history museum there as well. But you have the chance to see, you know, the slave markets. You have the chance to interact with the Gullah Geechee people there. You can learn from them as well and interact and see a lot of great African-American art, but also see just the stark differences between Black history and you know, everything else there and to see those plantations and see which ones are telling the story of slavery in America, honestly. And then I would go down to Montgomery, Alabama to see the monuments there. Really important stop, in my opinion, Um, just to think about civil rights. So I guess that's more Mm -hmm. modern history when you really think about it and to think about it in light of the time that we're living in now. Um, And I should go back, actually, and say with Charleston, you can also go to the Mother Emanuel Church, talk about really modern history. You know, that's where eight parishioners and their pastor were killed a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think those are probably my top destinations. Uh, And, you know, I think you get a lot out of those. Oh, I think so. You know, when when we travel, I just, as a historian, it's I'm always trying to be properly aware of whose story is history, who's telling this story. And one thing that is just fundamental in all of this is who shaped our perspective and and what was their agenda? I'm not saying they're, you know, intending to be evil. It's just what was the cultural inertia and and who who shaped what I learned about this because that's my outlook and I've got to be open to the fact that that could be wrong from the start. And uh, when we travel, we can realize that other people get to tell the story also. It doesn't have to be the story that makes us comfortable. And part of the beautiful thing about travel is we we get out of our comfort zone and we come home with a better understanding. We come home as better people. It may have a little culture shock, but that culture shock is the growing pains of a broadening perspective, and that's a good thing. I love that. I hope more people think about it that way. Yeah. Tarewa Muzuzewa, thank you so much for joining with us. And uh, you're doing some courageous reporting for The New York Times, and there's an appetite for it, and there's a real need for it. Thanks a lot and best wishes. Thanks, Rick. Thank you for having me back on. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. 
We get website support from Amara Kittacon and Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Steve Camerano for his help this week. Find out more about our guests, search our archives, and listen again whenever you like at ricksteves.com slash radio. Join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.